would, please open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be looking at the 61st chapter in its entirety tonight. Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall flock and tend your flocks, stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there will be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a humble and needy people. Lord, we simply want to see your salvation and we want to see it spread to the ends of the earth. We want to know Christ, and we want the world around us to know Christ too. We pray that you would perform this wonderful work. We know, O oh Lord, that you will cause righteousness to sprout up before all of this earth. And we pray all of this with great expectation and joy in Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We've been looking at the last few weeks at some of the servant songs of Isaiah. We spent uh, our, the last two weeks looking particularly at two of the four servant songs in Isaiah. Uh, this text isn't technically a servant song, but it's so close. And you might say it's adjacent to the servant songs. It's a wonderful way to end a study on the servant songs of Isaiah. 
We've been using this illustration that the servant songs are something like dynamic portraits. That is, what we find in these songs are beautiful and rich descriptions of who our Savior is, of what the servant will be like and what the servant will accomplish. For example, in Isaiah 42, we saw that the servant will be a meek king. In Isaiah 52 and 53, we saw that the servant would be a worthy sacrifice for our sins. Well, those were songs written about the Messiah. But we have something very special in Isaiah 61. These are the words of Christ himself. Christ is the speaker, and he speaks concerning himself. In fact, these words are so important that Jesus uses this text as one of the launching points of his own earthly ministry. It was in Luke 4 that Jesus, per his custom, goes into the temple and he takes up a scroll, not a random one. He intentionally picks up this scroll and he reads from Isaiah 61. And I'll just read you what he says after he finish, finishes reading that text. In Luke 4:21, he says this, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, if we want to understand how Jesus understood his own ministry, how Jesus thought of himself as the servant of God and as God's Messiah, the answer is Isaiah 61. We have two points for us this evening to divide up this text and to get all that we can out of it. The first thing we want to see about the ministry of Christ is that the servant redeems his people. The servant redeems his people. The second thing we want to see is that the servant reveals God. He redeems his people, but he also reveals God at the same time in his redemption. We'll start with the first point. The servant redeems his people. Look with me at the first verse, how it opens up. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. And so we start off already with this important idea. Jesus is not just any person. He's not just any savior. He's the anointed one of God. He's an anointed savior. And we should ask ourselves, what does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus has been set apart for a specific role, a specific task. And normally this would have been done with oil. For example, a king in Israel would be set apart as king and oil would be used to anoint him, to signify to the people, this is your king. But what is Jesus anointed with? It's not a, a normal element. It's the Holy Spirit himself. Jesus is set apart. He's anointed and endued by the Holy Spirit. And that means all throughout his life, he will be a man with the Spirit's power. He will be endued with spiritual wisdom and spiritual direction. He's the anointed Savior of God. And what will he do? Well, look with me at the rest of verse 1. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison for those who are bound. And so I want you to see here uh, something rather poetic. He's describing what the Messiah will do. He's describing his own work. And he gives four different descriptions. And each one comes with one action and one group of people. Jesus will bring good news to the poor, for example. He will bind up the brokenhearted. He will proclaim liberty to captives. He will open the prison for those who 
are bound. And so already we're seeing the idea that this is a broad and multifaceted salvation that Jesus performs. It's a broad ministry. But we should ask ourselves, what kind of ministry, what kind of work is being described in this verse precisely? Is it a material prosperity kind of salvation? After all, we see that the poor are receiving good news. Perhaps it's that they now have lots of money. Is it a political freedom? We see people being let out of slavery. Perhaps this is a political kind of salvation. Or maybe it's something different. It's inner peace or something along those lines. You see, one of the dangers we risk when we come to a text like this is that it can be so easy to take any idea of what we think salvation is and read it into a text like this. So how do we figure out the right interpretation? Well, we do it by keeping on reading the Bible. We keep on going in the text to see how it describes itself. We rely on this important principle that the Bible interprets itself. Let's look at verse 2, and I think this will clarify, and also verse 3. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And you need to see that there is an important illusion taking place here. He's alluding to the day of the Lord. It's not perfectly quoted there, but the idea is the same. He talks here of a year of the Lord's favor and a day of vengeance of the Lord. It's a, it's a reference to an important concept known as the day of the Lord. And so we might ask ourselves, well, what is the day of the Lord? What did that idea contain within it? What was an important prophetic concept? It was essentially the day when God comes to do something incredible. It was the day when he would come and intervene in the lives of his people. And this became an especially important concept during the time of the exile. When the people of God are drawn out of Israel, when they are oppressed so severely... They began to look forward to the day of the Lord. When will God come and intervene? When will he come and bring his hand, his mighty hand upon us to save us? Well, there's two important components of the day of the Lord. There's two things that are always included in this idea that we see all throughout the prophetic literature. It's a day of great salvation and it's a day of terrible judgment. The day of the Lord, on the one hand, pictures Israel being restored by God, being, being rebuilt, Jerusalem being built back up, the covenant being mended, and God's people being brought back into fellowship with him. But it's not just a day of salvation, it's also a day of great worldwide judgment. It's also the day in which God would punish the world for abusing his people, punish the world that has denied him and his power. And so we're told in the words of Christ himself that he is the one to bring this day. He proclaims it. He announces it. He will be the one to bring amazing grace and at his second coming he will be the one to bring judgment itself. Let's keep going in verse 2 through 3. Jesus says that he comes to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a, a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called the oaks of righteousness, 
the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And so Jesus is further describing the kind of ministry that he will perform. And what do we see described? Well, there's going to be a total and dramatic reversal of the fortunes of the people of God. Do you you see what's happening here? They go from lamenting and weeping and mourning and weakness, and all of that is pushed to the side and replaced with beauty and gladness and praise and celebration. And I want you to focus on one very important thing that comes toward the end. Do you see right at the end that it says, that they may be called oaks, of righteousness. It comes at the end of the text because it summarizes all of the language that we've seen before. Jesus is describing all of his ministry, but this is the summary of the whole thing. And what is this ministry? He will make a people righteous. He will make a people holy and pure. He will make a people his own holy people. It summarizes the Messiah's salvation. But at the same time, it also reveals our true problem. If the solution is righteousness, then it shows us that the problem is that we lack righteousness. The problem is that we are in our sin. But the solution is that Jesus came to give it away. The problem is that we are sinners. And the solution is that Jesus Christ alone comes to take away the sin of the world. The problem is that we're born in iniquity, and the solution is that Jesus came to make us holy. Why did Jesus pick this text to read there in the temple on that day? Because he wanted to make absolutely clear the reason he came to this earth. He came to bring righteousness. He came to set sinners free from their sin. He came to rescue impoverished and lowly rebels and to bring them into the glorious grace of God. He came as the bringer and bearer of the righteousness of God. So what else do we see about Christ's redemption? Look with me at verses 4 through 6. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. It seems rather strange talking about building back ruined cities and whatnot. What's going on here? Well, once again, there's a reversal at play, a God-brought reversal. We could recall that Israel, almost all of its existence has been an oppressed people, right? We know the stories. We've been in Sunday school for years at this point. We know all about Israel and the stories of what happened to them. They were enslaved in Egypt. They come into land, but their troubles don't end there. They're oppressed by Philistines and Amorites, and all sorts of other people. And then the worst of it comes when they're exiled by the Assyrians, and eventually by the Babylonians. And their cities will be destroyed, and their temple will be ransacked, and their wealth will be plundered. The wicked will, in a sense, win the day, as it were. We can somewhat 
understand the psalmist's exclamation in Psalm 73, verse 3, when he says, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Well, in a sense, that describes the story of Israel. They constantly saw their enemies winning over them. But here God says, it's not forever. Here, the nations are actually building back Israel. That's the they in this description. They, the nations, will build Israel back. Israel will receive food and wealth from the nations. The Gentiles will not be their oppressors. They will be those who bolster up the people of God. It's a picture of the Gentiles building and restoring Israel. And it's also a picture of a newfound unity and peace between God's people and the Gentiles who come into the covenant. These enemies will come as co-heirs to this covenant. They will be brought into this covenant, made co-heirs in Christ. And what will happen to the people of God? Well, we see another reversal here as well. They're not slaves. They're not downtrodden. They're not pitiable. But rather, God says, you will be priests, teachers of the law. You will be the ministers of my word to all of this world, representing God and his holiness and his justice before all people. And this was always the hope for God's people. If you go back to the book of Exodus, for example, if you go to chapter 20, where they receive the holy law of God, and you just go one chapter back, we get this verse. God says to his people, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, And a holy nation, well here, the servant of God makes that promise a reality. He brings it about in a way it's never been true before. And look at verse 7 as it summarizes this teaching. Instead of shame, there will be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. That's a perfect summary of the redemption that we receive as God's people. The redemption that Christ gives to us. That what we deserve is not what we are given. What we deserve is shame and dishonor and everlasting punishment under the hand of God. And yet, what do we receive? A double dose of his blessing. A double dose of his grace. We receive more than just the forgiveness of sins. You and I are brought into fellowship with God himself with a restored relationship. We're not just given a second chance which we would blow immediately. We have a redemption that is secured for us. It's not just a passing happiness that will go away tomorrow or based upon our circumstances. No, it's a a redemption that brings everlasting joy. This is God's redemption, and it's found in Christ. He can remove your sins. He can make you righteous. He can make you his own holy and perfect people. That's the first point. The second thing we need to see is that the servant reveals God. And I want to be clear that this isn't a second act of the Messiah. It's not as if he saves and then he reveals. No, both of these things are accomplished together. 
Why is that? Because God is most clearly seen and known and revealed to his people in his work of salvation. The Redeemer reveals God. He unfolds his character to us. He shows us the heart of God himself. Through Jesus, we know God. Look at verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. What are we told here? God loves justice. In other words, he doesn't see justice and righteousness as something that's merely useful, something that is merely necessary or pragmatic. It's not as if God says, I will, I will give justice because I have to. No, it says that he loves justice. He delights in justice. His justice is a revelation of his holiness, his perfect hatred of sin. Habakkuk 1 13, the prophet says this to God. He says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Here we're reminded of this simple fact. God loathes sin. And it demands an answer by his justice. And that's what makes this next part very, very strange. And I want you to see it. Look at the rest of verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice... I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. We've seen the idea that God is just, and then we see attached to that that he will faithfully give a recompense. Now, what is that? Well, it is something that is due. It is something that is worked for. It is something that rightly belongs to the one that receives it. And what is the recompense? Well, in context, he's talking about the redemption of the Savior. What is due is the redemption of God. And that sounds very strange, doesn't it? How can salvation be our recompense? After all, we've already seen so clearly in this text that you and I don't deserve any of God's grace. We don't deserve a single ounce of the mercy of God. So how could there be any sense in which God ought to give this salvation. Well, it's true. In ourselves, we deserve nothing but the judgment of God. That's all that we have merited. But in Christ, we receive what he earns. We receive what rightly belongs to him, what he himself has merited, what he himself has earned according to the holiness of God's law. Let me try my best to illustrate this for us with the greatest illustration that we have. It's the cross of Christ itself. We know naturally that when we look upon the cross and we see Jesus Christ hanging there for our sin, we naturally understand that this is a moment of incredible grace, that here is our atonement, here is our Savior, here is the one who frees us from sin. It perfectly reveals the mercy of God, but I want you to see something else the cross also perfectly reveals the justice of God. How? Because there on the cross, sin is punished. Because there on the cross, God's wrath is satisfied. There at the cross is not just mercy, but it is justice being upheld. And that means that God faithfully 
justly gives you and I eternal life. Brothers and sisters, every person will receive the justice of God, but there is one important question that every person must ask themselves. When that day of judgment comes, will I be found in my sin or will I be found in Christ, covered by his blood, covered by my Redeemer? Don't doubt that Christ is your Savior. Look at how he's described in verse 10. Just move forward just a little bit. It says, I, and this is Christ speaking, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. See the description of who Jesus is. He's rejoicing in God. He's exulting in God. But we see something else. He is wearing the garments of salvation. The robes of righteousness have been wrapped around him. In other words, when we see Christ, what are we meant to see and behold? We're meant to see the walking and talking and breathing salvation of God. That God's mercy and his judgment against sin are bound up with that man. He's robed in righteousness. He's clothed in salvation. He perfectly shows us who God is. He shows us his grace and his holiness. Finally, we want to see one more thing. God is not just revealed in Christ, but he is revealed to the whole world. I want to take a few verses, group them together here. I want to go back to verse 3. We skipped that, just the ending of that verse until now. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Then I want you to go forward into verse 9. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of, the, of all the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. And then finally, I want you to look at verse 11, the final verse of our text. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So what do, what do we see in this text? How could we summarize all of that? Well, we see that God's salvation is public and it's open and it's before all of the nations. They will see God's work. They will see what he has done through the lives of his people. In other words, this is not a hidden, obscured salvation of God. It is seen before the whole world. You know, when Jesus rose from the dead, he gathered his disciples and he gave them the great commission. And he told them, go to the ends of the earth and speak of all that I have said and done and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And what was the goal? So that all the world might know that I am the Redeemer, that Christ has come. 
that a mediator has been given, that a redeemer for our sins has been provided to this world. It means that this salvation that we have is too great to keep to ourselves. It's too marvelous for us to hoard it up here. It must be told. It is meant to be seen. It's meant to be proclaimed. It's meant to be preached and lived out. We're meant to be witnesses of this truth. This is how God is going to bring himself perfect glory. Look at what he says. He says that he will cause righteousness to sprout up all over this world. That is praise will now cover the earth. This is what the servant does. He brings about this vision. He makes this a reality. He is the redeemer of this whole world. He's the one who perfectly reveals God and proclaims a salvation that declares his holiness as well as his grace. And he's also the one who brings God perfect glory. Let's pray.